Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Back this week is TLS commissioning editor and certainly not token northerner or pronunciation guru, Thea Lenadutsi, although having heard you record your name earlier, I, I'm not doing it justice. Well, I? no, I mean, and I'll, I'll take pronunciation, pronunciation guru, except that I can't pronounce that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm going to set up as a consultant. You should and do. Prey on people's insecurities. I mean, I'm sure to say, say your name. Say your name. Say your name. This is ridiculous. This is when I introduce myself as half Italian, and people go, "Oh, oh, say something in Italian." My name is Thea Lenarduzzi. Which is kind of what I said. Uh, would, it be, <laughs> would it be immodest of us to note that this podcast, Thea, was recently included in the Guardian list of top ten books podcasts as? One of the best One out of there. One of the best out there. Well, no, I mean, I think it's your duty to point it out. And as I think it's the duty of, of, of our listeners, that's that's you, to uh, leave us a review because it really does help. And if anything, it keeps me in a job. So oh, yeah, that would well, be that would be very much appreciated. That's a heartfelt, <laughs> that's a heartfelt plea there. We're going to try and maintain our quality and humility this week. Coming on the show, we'll be returning to something we discussed a month ago on this podcast, life writing. This week's paper is a special issue dedicated to that very thing. We begin with D.H. Lawrence, Seamus Perry has reviewed three books about Lawrence, including a new biography. What should we make of this difficult, spiritually dyspeptic man? And how has his literary value changed over time? Seamus will help us to decide. We shall then consider a life that was, until recently, anonymous, Elena Ferrante. She was exposed in rather grubby fashion by an Italian hack called Claudio Gatti, writing for Inter Alia, the New York Review of Books. One of his justifications for naming Ferrante was the publication of her autobiographical fragments in which she has told of her experience as a writer. Ruth Skurs reviewed the book and a frankly terrifying children's story also written by Ferrante. We shall also turn to another unexamined life, the life of hair. Catherine Hughes has reviewed a book by Emma Tarlow called Entanglement, a knotty tale of how hair is bought and sold across the world. She'll be in the studio with us. And finally, we've been speaking to the author Lionel Shriver in Singapore. We'll be publishing the full interview as a separate podcast, but she'll give you a brief glimpse into her thoughts on how Donald Trump might influence fiction. 
But to D.H. Lawrence, who was, according to Seamus Perry, a difficult writer, not in the sense that he was hard to read, but in the sense we use of a difficult colleague. According to Seamus, for much of the time, he was clearly an impossible person, prickly, sometimes fantastically cantankerous, permanently subject to what he called spiritual dyspepsia. And in common with many writers, he treated slights and rejection with an almost pathological hypersensitivity. Yet in his life, as afterwards, his greatness as a writer, both novelist and poet, was widely acknowledged, even as his opinions have not perhaps aged terribly well. Seamus joins Thea and me now. Seamus, you say in the piece that the central question for any admirer of Lawrence is the relationship between the vehemently held doctrines that he brought to the writing of fiction and the virtues of the fiction that emerged. And I wonder whether you might help us understand both of those things. What are these doctrines he held and then how do they connect or otherwise with the virtues of the fiction he produced? Yeah, that's right. Well, I, uh, it's a phenomenon that's common to quite a lot of uh, early 20th century great writers. Uh, Yeats has his own version of it, and perhaps T.S. Eliot has his own version of it. A whole set of ideas gaining currency amongst the the avant-garde at that time about the pre-rational mind and about the the way that the, the, the truest and the most authentic kinds of humanness actually lie way beneath the rational intelligence in dark depths. Uh, if you're T.S. Eliot, you think those dark depths are savage, uh, and civilization is uh, is an attempt to, as it were, cover them over, cover over the, the, the cracks. And Freud, uh, as he ages, has a similarly bleak view about all that. Lawrence has a rather different kind of view, which is entirely, as no one will be surprised to hear, wrapped up with the idea of sex and the erotic life, and uh, and the idea that there are certain kinds of of uh, vivid sort, sorts of human identity located in the in the in the deep erotic uh, pre-conscious bits of your of your uh, hu- humanity and that's what you need to access and to tap into and that sounds fine but i mean how do you know you've tapped into it as a, as opposed to having tapped into something else which is much much darker and and more worrying and and lawrence uh, almost inevitably comes to a position in which there are some people who are better at tapping into the energy and the power of the blood and there are some other people who are less good at doing it and and those who are better at doing it should be in a position of authority over those who are less good at doing it and so on and so on and so on so the political ramifications of his position if you took them all as a as a piece of of uh, serious moral philosophy are you know at the very least you could say worrying and as a writer he clearly thought that one of his jobs was to evangelize to 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 put these ideas into you know fictional uh, into fictional or poetic form and and to spread them and so save England from its over uh, rationalizing decay. The great thing it seems to me about his writing is when the whole force of this rather cranky and mad kind of thesis driven um, slightly obsessional kind of writing bumps into a much much more kind of intuitive and instinctive and co- comical kind of vision of uh, of human and animal and plant life. Uh, which kind of rather redeems it from that sort of slightly kind of uh, monomaniacal quality. Well, I suppose, is is that what Ezra Pound was saying when he pointed out that it's really when Lawrence gets beyond his own disagreeable sensations and focuses on the low-life narrative that he's so good that his his contemporaries, poets at least, uh, can't get within a shot of him. I think um, that's exactly what he meant. And I think that what Pound was speaking out of there at some some obscure level of self-acquaintance was exactly what applied to him too. 
Yes, interesting. And and this the question of sexuality. You, you quote Lawrence as saying, "I who loathe sexuality so deeply am considered a lurid sexuality specialist." Yeah. yeah. I mean, how interesting or important? Because one of the books, in fact, that you review is called "Love and Sex" in D. H. Lawrence, and I wonder quite where love and sex intertwine all the time in D. H. Lawrence. But how interesting is sex as a way of considering Lawrence? Is it kind of too obvious and therefore should be shunned, or are there things we can learn from looking at it? So what he's against is sexuality in the sense of what he calls sex in the head, which is, as it were, the kind of sexuality that we all suffer suffer from because because we're not listening to the proper deeper instincts that constitute our most you know fundamental identity. That's that's as it were the basic basic idea, and so something like Lady Chatterley's Lover is all about a, a woman who's who's had the wrong kind of sexual experience, and and is educated in the most profound way in the right kind of sexual experience. I mean, it's an extraordinarily idea-driven sort of book. I don't know. I mean, some people find that deeply interesting as a thought, and some people, amongst whom I'd include myself, find it rather tedious as a thought. Well, I think what's great about Lawrence is the way that in the midst of this very, very thesis-driven uh, thinking about human relationships and interrelationships, he's actually a, a brilliantly perceptive about the way that people um, rub along with each other or rub, rub each other up the wrong way or, you know, there's, there's like friction and difficulty between them. Uh, and he's extraordinarily good at the odd sorts of human comedy that happen when one kind of, of human uh, life bumps into a totally different kind of human life. He's, he's got some wonderful um, moments about, like that in his novels and his short stories. One of the sorts of life that sometimes bumps into human life most brilliantly in Lawrence, of course, is non-human life. It's animals and plants and the sort of thing that you come across, all of, all of which have their own mysterious, ultimately untheorizable kind of vitality, which he is just wonderful at evoking. I wondered with, uh, do you think this is unfair, Shane? is that he, of all sort of great novelists, he's almost the most open to damaging quotation. That in any any of his his great novels, of which there are several, and, and the, you know you can pick out a passage, particularly perhaps when he's writing about sex or all the ideas behind sex, we can end up sounding rather silly, and actually you almost have to abstract that from from the greatness. I think that's absolutely right, and I think what's even even more t- telling is that. He often seems, at least to my eyes, and I think to many people's eyes, to be writing at his least plausible when he's writing closest to message, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, and one of the good things about that David Ellis book, which I review, and David Ellis is a great and profound Lawrence scholar, is that he's gone through and tried to piece together, as it were, what Lawrence thinks about sex and thinks about love, and uh, has this wonderful and refreshing sort of honesty to, to admit that some particular pungent sentences in Women in Love, which clearly absolutely encapsulate as it were, the argument of that book in terms of Lawrence's sex theory are, as, as Ellis says, some of the worst sentences that Lawrence ever wrote. But earlier in that same chapter, you get a completely different sort of much, uh, much more socially comical sort of Lawrence that, 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 that is present. And I, I, it seems to me, at least, it rather redeems those moments where Lawrence is so, um, so unmitigatedly on message that, that the prose just becomes absorbed in itself and its own kind of grandiosity. Your review also touches on Lawrence the Critic, which I thought was interesting. Uh, what sort of explainer of the novel form was he, in your view? Was he, was he, was he one of those good critic practitioners? He's, he's, a, he's a very eccentric critic in the sense that his criticism often comes from a quite kind of cranky and, and deeply, um, as well, conceptually embattled sort of position. He's not a, he's, he's not a disinterested or, or, or a lucid 
critic. He's he's uh, he's much more like um, like Pound, I suppose, as a critic, whose criticism is often sporadically, you know, brilliant in flashes, but but is 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 deeply um, eccentric in its in its basic orientation. One thing that Lawrence was really good about is that he's one of the first people in the main sort of British novelistic tradition to take American writers seriously. And his book about uh, classic American uh, fiction is is an extraordinary attempt to to figure out what uh, the classical American literature is an extraordinary attempt really for anyone else has tried to figure out why people like Hawthorne matter and especially why Whitman is a great poet I mean Whitman is a you know Eliot doesn't really tune into T.S. Eliot doesn't really tune into Whitman in a way that that helps us get to Whitman and Lawrence is one of the very first to think that Whitman was a new kind of voice for a new kind of age, an age of, about which Lawrence had deeply ambivalent feelings, but nevertheless recognised that, you know, Whitman was the genius to to try and capture a new sort of poetic rhythm and a, and a new kind of poetic shape for that for that modern age. Still talking about his his theory of the novel, I mean, yeah. doesn't doesn't Lawrence sort of apply his the same theory that he applies to 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 crafting relationships in fiction? It's about a process of creating a union, however awkward. So, you've got these these the oscillation between opposites, which is why, for for example, I think quite often uh, well, there was a phase a habit of describing Lawrence as 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 clumsy in, or inelegant in his in his writing. I think there's there's something about the way that he brings together both difficulty, you know, the high and the low, and then the difficult and the ease, the easy. So he may be a difficult colleague, but he's also a, an engaging storyteller who you want to hang around with. Yes, no, I think that's right, and I and I think one of the one of the things uh, that he's so good at is is the odd sort of uh, emotional instability or unpredictability of um, intimate encounters, by which I don't just mean erotic encounters, but just you know intimate human encounters. And his prose, as it were, has a similar kind of erratic life. I mean, you, you don't really quite know what it's going to do next. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was so attracted to Thomas Hardy, because although Hardy's a very, very different writer, uh, Hardy's um, prose, too, com- completely lacks any sort of classical you know, sort of centre to its to its tone or to its, to its idiom. It's a very erratic and almost like invented moment-to-moment kind of kind of voice. I think Lawrence loved that sense, uh, and it's one of the greatest things that his works, his poems, I think especially, but all his works evoke, is that sense of, of the spontaneousness of certain sorts of experience. Yeah, and, and speaking of the spontaneous, there's a piece that you discuss, uh, there's, a, there's a bit that you, you discuss in your piece, uh, one of your favourite bits of all of Lawrence, uh, which comes after a blazing row between Ursula and, and Rupert, uh, and an oblivious cyclist wanders across the scene. Can you tell yeah, us what, right. what strikes you about that passage? Because I I mean, I remember that and I was really happy to be reminded of it, but I interpreted it kind of differently, I think. <laughs> oh, how did you interpret it? <laughs> well, no, no, you go first. You go first. That's okay, only fair. <laughs> all right. Well, OK, so the reason I like it, the reason I like it is because that, that is the crescendo chapter, as it were, within, within, within the way that Women in Love is structured as a, as a novel, partly about a, a thesis about, sex, about sexuality and the sexual life. Um, and, and we're just heading, as it were, to the climax, if you'll excuse me, about the whole thing. And, and at, the, at this particular moment, um, the cyclist who seems to have, and, and indeed has, nothing to do with, with the plot, just as it were, wanders in his sort of slightly wavering way through uh, witnesses, um, you know, as it, as it were, life in this sort of rather mono-ocular mono Lorentzian universe, of which he has no comprehension whatsoever. And then wanders out of the, out of out of that w- world again. And I, I, there's something about 
Lawrence's openness to the possibility of human lives that actually aren't governed or structured by the ideas that otherwise he found so completely compelling, which seems to me rather, rather, rather wonderful. And it always reminds me of a great thing that T.S. Eliot says about about the poetry that he admires, that, that it's, it's always open to, you know, to the possibility of other kinds of experience than the one that is, that is you know, primarily in mind. And, and that moment of, of the cyclist wandering through, this perplexed cyclist wandering through the rainbow has always struck me as being a little bit like that, the sense of the plurality of worlds rather than, rather than the, you know, the, the, the intense Lorentzian singularity of... Ah, well, then I, I do think I think we do agree because I mean I was thrown because you said um, you, you said that the scene gives a sense of of a whole world that exists outside the the Lorentzian worldview, and I I see that scene as very much a part of his worldview. I see it as right. one of the many kind of little fragments or or, or globelets that exist in isolation, or as yes. part of the always fluctuating whole. So the role of the bikers to remind us that if Ursula and Rupert are the main characters in this in this story, they're also just minor characters in some other story, a story in which yes, perhaps yes. the biker really is the main character and you know, yes, that's a wonderful way of putting it. There's always there. something else going on somewhere else in the wood. Exactly. Isn't that Lawrence laughing at himself slightly there then? Because yeah. uh, uh, he's, he's almost sort of poking fun at his own mania. I think, I think that's absolutely exactly what's happening. I think that's right. There's, there's this, he has this very, very strong, a strong instinct of, of um, mockery, and it can often be directed at other people in a rather cruel way, but it can sometimes be directed at himself. And I, I think that's exactly the kind of rather sort of save well as i see it at least the rather kind of saving moment that crops up in all sorts of bits of lawrence you have a sense of of, of sorts of experience over which lawrence the, the the theorist or lawrence the philosopher has uh, either no control or extraordinarily incomplete control and it seems to be what what's what's a bit sort of dispiriting about lawrence um when he's dispiriting is is the sense of human experience being um, uh, you know, commandeered or, or gerrymandered in this rather kind of exhausting way within the terms of Lawrence's philosophy. And the example that I remember my old tutor, John Bailey, used to say was uh, Clifford, um, Lady Chatterley's husband in Lady Chatterley's uh, Lover, who is in a wheelchair. And, and, the, and the reason he's, and there's a narrative reason why he's in the wheelchair, but the real reason he's in the wheelchair is because Lawrence needs him to symbolize disability. So in a way, his his individuality as a character has been co-opted by, yeah, by the by the demands, as it were, of Lawrence's thesis about him. And what's lovely about the the cyclist is that he seems to wander through, um, as it were, f- f- you know, free of any particular duty to exemplify an aspect of uh, Lawrence's metaphysic. Well, I, I hope, Seamus, that one one effect of us um, publishing uh, your piece and, and you writing it, it'll send people back to to the books. I think that's one of the great virtues we can do at the TLS way. We have a long piece about D. H. Lawrence. People, I mean, I'm going to go and read reread Woman in Love, or I'm going to go and yeah, well, uh, read, go go straight back to it. Go read the read the poems too. Birds, beasts, and flowers. Is the, is the wonderful volume of his poems, which is absolutely all about this kind of ultimately untheorizable, spontaneous life that you appreciate and you can't quite bring within the terms of your understanding. And he's just he's just fantastic at that. OK, we'll go back to the prose and the poetry. Uh, uh, Seamus Perry, thank you so much indeed. OK. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, and if you, if you need an example of his, his own kind of self-mocking 
tendencies, he had his his collection of poetry called Pansies, which was quite nice. You yeah, know, we, playing on pensée and which is in the and we have a review of it in the back of the is in the archive of the TLS this week. Oh, excellent! Okay, I had not. Did seen you not that. know? That? I had not I seen thought, that. I, I just thought I just thought that was a shameless segue <laughs> no. into advertising the TLS. No, and, and we've got a review of Pansies. Oh no! Oh, excellent! Uh, in, in 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 the archive section, I get the feeling you really? love D.H. Lawrence. I it? do. Uh, yeah, D.H. Lawrence was one of the first writers who I I got genuinely really excited really, uh, about and I, I devoured it all really um, so I yeah, find I, him a bit I, silly I think no. I, I, it makes me I, a lot of the stuff when I when you quote this well I think the damaging quotation book really strikes me that some of it I just look at him that's just silly no I, I loved it and I think it, it, he's he's a perfect lead into the, the person who we're going to speak about next Elena Ferrante because there are so many similarities in in the way that they write and the way that they're interpreted when I was referring rather clumsily as it turned out to his uh, the charge of him being clumsy that's something that has often been leveled at uh, Ferrante as well she's been accused of being clumsy because her her verse her her writing rather is so is so bodily and so honest and raw yeah. and and people seem to really take issue with that but i find the i mean it's going to sound impossibly cheesy but i find there to be a real truth in that and i think especially when you're writing about sex yeah because sex is you know it's wonderful but it's also ridiculous sometimes and it's it's real but it's also it, you never it involves get a sen- lot of posturing and but you never get the sense my problem with lawrence i suppose we'll, we'll then get on to ferranti is um I don't get the sense he's always. It's a, he recognizes the ridiculousness of how he's talking about it. Yeah, you well, know, he's almost the honorary father of the bad sex mm, writing prize, yeah. isn't he? Anyway. And then I suppose you think of Stella Gibbons, you know, Cold Comfort Farm, yeah. and he, he, you know, Mr. Mybug. And yes, he's he's very open to parody, but then you know he put himself out there. Yeah, and and greatness often is open to parody. So yeah. At least it has a style. But so that was a deliberate segue, though. To uh, you didn't. It was. <laughs> that was a deli- that was a deliberate segue. That was a deliberate segue, but it was a natural one, as it were. Okay, that's good. Well, we shall move on. The largest literary scandal of 2016 unquestionably revolved around the Italian writer Elena Ferrante. As an author, she's become justly renowned for her Neapolitan Quartet, an expansive realist series set in post-war Naples. She's also known as being unknown. Ferrante is a pseudonym and her true identity are tightly kept publishing secret. But secrets have a habit of coming out. On this occasion, an Italian journalist called Claudio Gatti did some nosing around financial records and, following the celebration journalistic injunction of follow the money was able to track down the figure who has benefited most financially from being Elena Ferrante and thus who probably is her. But we shouldn't really kid ourselves. This was no Watergate triumph of investigative journalism. It was a largely pointless, self-indulgent unmasking of someone who had taken steps to protect her identity. It caused a frisson of unworthy excitement among the literati and has already dwindled into unimportance. Except... We do not know yet whether Ferranti, one of the great writers of our age, will pick up a pen again. Gatti and the publications who ran his piece may have committed an outrageous act of barbarity by naming her, the burning of books that do not yet exist. Ruth Scare has now reviewed the latest two books written before the scandal. Frantumaglia, Thea? Frantumaglia. Frantumaglia, there we go. A series of fragments, jumbled stories and bits of autobiography. And The Beach at Night, I can manage that one. A children's story. Uh, Ruth joins Thea and me now. Hi, Ruth. Hi. We'll get to the ethics of all of this shortly because I think it's the intre- one of the most interesting things about it and also your piece. But perhaps tell us a bit about Frantumaglia. 
Very, very nice. Thank yes, you. Silent uh, G. Yes, yeah, Silent G, Frantimalia. What, 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 what is it? Because it's a jumble of fragments. But what does that mean and what's its purpose? It's an interesting decision on her part to publish pieces that really take you through the journey she's been on as a writer. So it's not retrospective. She's not saying, this is where I've got to now and this is how I did it. It's a series of interviews, some pieces of prose that she cut from her novels, one very interesting response to um, a film script that was made from, from her first novel. And cumulatively, you see her evolving as a writer. And she discusses in these fragments very openly the decision she has made, which is basically to physically separate herself from her books. But ironically, of course, the existence of this sort of autobiographical writing was actually used by Gatti in his sort of rather uh, feeble, in many ways, justification for exposing. He said, well, look, if you're going to write autobiographical fragments, if you're going to play the sort of very postmodern game of nudges and winks as, as to who you are, you're going to get outed at some point. But they're not autobiographical fragments in that sense. Um, they're very much companion pieces to her novels and her fiction. And she herself describes them as a kind of appendix, like the notes almost to herself um, that she had in, in her mind or sometimes has written down. So there's no claim at all that this is autobiography and obviously there are some statements there um, included in the in these fragments just as there are in perhaps in the novels that can be interpreted as autobiographical but that's actually not how she's presenting them she's more very generously putting them out there as a resource for people who want to understand her creative process. And in that sense, it's the opposite of the kind of cat and mouse teasing game. It's a very, very generous exposure of the struggles involved in her creativity. I mean, there aren't that many writers, I think, who would, who would admit to sort of... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This level of self-editing, I mean, she she doesn't publish a great deal of what she writes, and she didn't for a long time. And so you really get the sense it's a very considered decision when she does publish, and she has chosen to do so in these you know very strict conditions. She writes a lot about the role of the reader, doesn't she? About the work that the reader puts into making the text live on, and how the text is a different thing to every reader. It's it's a very empowering view of, yeah. of what the reader is. I completely agree with that. And she even has this idea of the third book, which is mm. the book she didn't write and which the reader hasn't really read, but which is the book they carry with them as a result of the experience of reading her text and the images from their past and their own inner lives that they that get caught up in that process of reading. And that's such an innovative way of looking at why books remain with us, why why they become important. And, you know, everybody's Anna Karenina is, is, is different and perhaps, you know, there's some part of your personal inner self that goes into building that picture. So I think that idea of the third book where the reader is having a hugely creative role as well as the, the writer it is, is fascinating. What's the importance of gender in all of this? Because you refer, I think, in in the review to her issuing challenges to patriarchy. And in some senses, Claudio Gatti naming her was a a sort of mansplaining taken to the nth degree. You know, a guy saying, (laughs) you don't don't want to give your name, but I'm going to assume the responsibility of that. Is there an aspect of, of gender here where effectively... As a female novelist, she has made a decision that has now been considered unpalatable to a guy. Or is that overlooking at it, do you think? No, I think there definitely is an element of that. Um, Who knows if she would have felt so strongly about separating her her physical self, her, her personal life from her work if, she, if she'd been male. Um, I think there's a huge amount in her novels about women, power, friendship, the way in which um, women in politics as well. So I, I don't think it's overthinking it to to see that there is a there is a gender issue there. You're a very good biographer, and one of the things that's coming we've sort of keeps touching on this issue. We keep sort of coming back to the theme when we spoke to you about your review of the biography of Bell Brainbridge, the, the ethics of biography, the ethics of writing about another life without consent. And last week, actually, we talked about the scandal of the royal archives, where the royal family prevent you from ever learning the facts about someone's life Mm. do you think Mm. and this whole issue is a sort of life writing issue ruth where we're looking at people like dh lawrence and and thomas hardy do you think that there is a different i mean what are the ethics for you as a biographer does death make a difference if you're writing about someone who's long gone does that is that an act of liberation then for you to say i can now get whatever i can is that is that the distinction between someone like D.H. Lawrence and Elena Ferrante, one's alive and has got has got opinions that need to be respected and one's dead and therefore fair, fair game. Yes, I mean, I have only ever written about dead people, long, long dead people as well. So I've never had that specific ethical question. And I think it, it is a very important one when the subject is alive. All sorts of things are different. Um, whereas with, with, with uh, going back into the past, you're, you're protected from that. There's a huge amount of 
ethical questions there to answer. But I mean, Elena Ferranti isn't saying, you know, biographers and journalists are, are heinous and they're of a lower order from us, you know, creative writers. She's saying that actually what, she, that what she's chosen to do with her life, to spend it at her desk, creating these works of fiction that is her life that is where the emphasis needs to fall and the life she says the life she's interested in is the life that makes it into the work of art it's it's the life that survives inside those novels and in many respects what she is a very sort of old-fashioned position that you know the, the poet the artist etc they're sort of vessels through which these wonderful works of art come into being and it, it doesn't make sense to direct attention to towards their, you know, what they were doing on this day or personal life. I think we've all read biographies of, of great writers and thought, actually, maybe I'd rather be reading their books. Well, I think that's definitely true. And in fact, in, in, the, in the piece, you talk about the tittle-tattle that has nothing to do with literature. And I just wonder whether it's easy to spot the tittle-tattle that has nothing to do with literature when it's Elena Ferrante who's alive and, and has feelings. But yet, yet there must be countless biographies of writers who are no longer alive which is filled with tittle-tattle i just wonder is there any ethical problem with that or is that just you know use your job as a biographer to dig up what you can so tittle-tattle is a very pejorative word and there is talking you know about the very frivolous things about you know what what people sort of look like or um the the things that get picked up in the magazines etc but i definitely think there is a place for for biography that puts writing into its historical and cultural context and does that as sensitively as possible. I mean, I could never say those books aren't valuable or we don't need those books. That said, I think Ferranti is making a, a very powerful and very important intervention in reminding us that actually you know, the reason we would care about those things in the first place is because what is at issue here is great literature great art and that really needs to be at, at the center and the people who are able to produce that we, we, we need to respect them and if, if they want to do that without attaching their their names to to their works then that absolutely is is a decision that the society should be able to accept i think we've got just a little bit of time now to talk about the children's book the beach at night uh tell us tell us about that i i i loved it did you Absolutely. It was such a surprise. I mean, I had no idea what a children's book by Elena Friends... It sounds terrifying. Like. Well, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm interested in... Because, Ruth, you, um, in your review, you, you refer to its happy ending, which I, I, didn't find, I didn't find it to be a happy ending at all, really. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, explain the ending to those of us, including me, who've not read this. What... <laughs> Just cover your children's ears. Yeah, spoiler, <laughs> yeah. spoiler alert. The, the, story, the story is uh, from the perspective of a doll who's been um, displaced by the arrival of a kitten in the family. And the doll has been abandoned on the beach at night. And it's a wonderful sort of story of, of, of her sort of feeling of abandonment, which is, of course, one of Ferranti's major themes in her in her books for, for grown-ups. And the happy ending is when the, the, the cat comes back and rescues the cat whom the doll loathes and you know, hopes is terribly ill, etc. Comes back, rescues the doll, takes it back to the distressed little girl. And the cat and the doll sort of exchange their names and think maybe they can accept one another and they both have a place in this little girl's life. That sounds happy ah, to me, Theo. Well, What's no. wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I read it as, um, you know, the cat 
is loathed by the doll because the doll blames the cat for the abandonment uh, that mm. she suffers. And the last line is it? I'm uh, the last line is said by the doll. She says, "I'm so happy to have found my name again. I can even be happy about this." To me, that's very ambiguous. It's a very fragile ceasefire, and I think mm. it's particularly revealing when you think this was written just before the Neapolitan Quartet started. So you know, you have the mm. foreshadowing of the, the the scene with the dolls at the beginning of that quartet. Mm. But I think it's particularly mm. revealing that the cat is called Minou. And the doll is called Chilina. So bearing in mind that the main characters in the quartet who have this passionate, love-hate, uh, mm-hmm. furious and wonderful relationship, they're called Linu and Lina. It's mm. The dynamic is the same, so it's just this, this very tenuous ceasefire to me. There are going to be more cool. battles to come. There may be a series of children's books. Well, <laughs> yeah, the I, beach well, at night well, too, this time it's personal. <laughs> yeah. A quartet. <laughs> a quartet of children. Hey, maybe, maybe she... I mean, um, just finally, cause we, we've got to go, Ruth, but one of the things that was said, and she, I think Elena Fretes has said this herself, she will not write if she is named. Is there any sense, I mean, is that is that a legitimate fear to say by the act of naming her? Because the, the children's book, The Beach at Night, is kind of about the the power that you have over someone in terms of their name, which is what you, mm. you, you bring out very beautifully in your piece. Mm. Is mm. there a risk that she has been disempowered by this act of naming by Gatti and the New York Review of Books and other, other publications? Is that is that legitimate concern? Well, you're, I, I mean, I think, I think there is, it is a legitimate concern. She's a very powerful and effective agent, and if she decides not to write, she won't write. But what she actually has said is that she won't publish. I don't think anything will stop her mm. writing, and she's written a great deal that she hasn't published anyway so she may easily decide that she's not going to publish the things that she even when she deems them you know lots of the things she said she she didn't think she wanted to publish but it, it could have an effect and, and that's one of the reasons it's been taken so seriously in, in the literary world well let's hope that that doesn't come to pass because Absolutely. Um, um, I, I started reading her, her stuff relatively recently it's extraordinary and it's a it's a great piece Ruth and I think mm. both uh, I'm glad that we I'm glad that you looked at both the beach at night and the fragments together because they do clearly sort of talk to one another. Oh, thank you. And thank you, Theo, as well. Take care. Thank you. Bye, Ruth. Bye. Well, I'm glad that you uh, read uh, The Beach at Night as well. Did you read it in Italian? Yes. Oh. And I, um, I read it before I went up to uh, do a panel recently in Leeds, uh, part of the Ilkley Literature Festival. Okay. So we were talking about it a lot. And that's, I mean, that's the beauty of Ferrante is, is the power over the narrative that the reader has and how strongly different people can feel different ways about the same text. And that, yeah. was, certainly, that was certainly true of all of the people who came to the, the panel that, that, that I was on with Anne Goldstein. And I think it's true, this fragment from what Ruth is saying, that it's kind of an act of collaboration with the mm. reader where you're kind of brought into her, her office and sort of made to understand what it's like to mm. be a writer like Ferrante, which for someone who is not seeking to be named is a, is a is quite a brave and, and sort of interesting thing to do, I reckon. Mm. But it's, it's very much part of her thing of this isn't only about me, this is about everyone else and she does give us so much of herself in in her you know you could draw parallels with the um écriture féminine of Helene Sisou and people like that you know she gives us everything it's a very bodily very bodily oeuvre oh, that's anyway a, maybe that's something for another podcast that, that's the, yeah, <laughs> the bodily oeuvre I think that's something for another day we must move on we shall expand the definition of life writing now to the secret lives of hair. Catherine Hughes has reviewed in this week's TLS Emma Tarlow's book Entanglement, which tells the anthropological tale of the cultural transactions that underpin the multi-billion dollar global hair market. Hair is then a cash crop, and the market traced by Tarlow nothing less than a trade in human body parts on an industrial scale.
tail. It is also, according to Catherine, a liminal thing, hair, marking the boundary between the individual and the outside world. So hair is a substance that enables to consider all sorts of interesting cultural, national and religious ideas and values. Uh, Catherine joins Thea and me in the studio now. Uh, Catherine... Perhaps you might give us a bit of an overview of the hair industry, because I kind of suspect that's something that most people haven't really given much thought to. I mean, I was, I was thinking about as I was reading this, is it always the movement of poor people providing their hair to rich people? Is that a way of categorising the movement? That's exactly the way that Tarlow describes it. Uh, you know, poverty is is the kind of the seedbed of, of the hair trade. So what you get, as, as, as she, and she explains it very well, I think she's very, very good on the kind of circulation of this cash crop around the world. Wherever you have poor women with not many resources, the one thing they have is their body, obviously it's labour, but also it's waste products, which is their hair, uh, for which there is an enormous market in both the developed world, the places that we might automatically think of, New York, Paris, London, where hair extensions have sort of so taken off, but also actually Africa and the African diaspora. There's a huge demand for hair there, those very, very complicated kind of braids and weaves, and that just creates this enormous market. So hair is kind of flowing really from east to west but it does quite a lot of details I think that's where Tala's very interesting and it's, it's when she delves into the kind of the dark underbelly of the trade that things get really yeah. it really justifies its place this book I think yeah that's right I mean she, the way she describes it it sounds a bit like the drugs industry it's mm. very very secret I mean she has huge problems actually tracking down people who speak to her and then when she does speak to them and it's always kind of very shady it's always sort of in a kind of rather nasty hotel par or the back of a taxi they, they'll often say you know I, I can't speak you on the record, you know. But why? Why? Because it's, it's presumably it's a legitimate. It's a, is it a legitimate trade? Is it recognised as a, as a trade? It's legitimate. I think there might be a, a few question marks over whether the right kind of import taxes get paid at particular places. But it's more than that. It's really about the fact that. For hair to have a, a really kind of strong market value, it needs to have a, a kind of dignified provenance. So it needs not to be unpicked in a small village in Myanmar. It needs to sort of as it were, come from Peru. So what happens is hair that is indeed picked in Myanmar, clotted waste, unpicked by women, then gets shunted out to China. Then it might go on to Peru, back to Paris, and it sort of picks up these extra kind of cultural shimmer as it goes. And the secrecy, I think, is about not being truthful about where this raw material actually started. Extraordinary. I I was really struck by your account of Jewish women in Britain covering their hair with wigs, either the other women's hair or their own hair. These wigs are called shaitals, aren't they? Explain, that's that's for a religious orthodoxy reason that they're doing it. Yeah, as Tarlo explained, I have to say I am no expert, but as Tarlo explained it amongst very observant orthodox Jews, the idea is that once a woman is um, married and and therefore sexually active, her her kind of sexual knowledge permeates to her hair and therefore becomes something that's not proper for other people apart from her husband. So it would be like sort of walking down the street without your skirt on. I, I think that's what it would be like. So you have to cover your your hair when you're out in public. And you, you mentioned in, in relation to Scheitel's, these kind of hairdresser sort of parties that they have where they all get together and kind of discuss. It's sort of made, I mean, I live in I live in Peckham, home of the Tumbleweave, and uh, the, the barbershops and salons and on a Friday night are a wonder to behold. You know, they make you so envious you want to be a part of that community. So I wondered, does she go into the 
the, the important role of hair in binding together communities much, and especially the African-American community. The, her main field work amongst uh, the African... African-American community, she goes to Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, and goes to a what's called a hair mart and talks to people who are both sellers and, and consumers of these, you know, very, very elaborate kind of hair weaves. And she, she touches or she tries to untangle something quite interesting, which she stumbles upon, which is this sense of, is it false consciousness for a, 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 somebody of African heritage to wear extensions uh, because they are a European invention, and that is that is apparently oh. a very live topic amongst American diaspora and others. There are so many answers to this question uh, because, of course, if you think about Africa, a multiple of different kinds of hair types there. It's it's a huge continent with all sorts of tribal identities and many many different hair practices. So this suggestion that you can say, well, it's fine to have weaves and braids, but it's not all right to have extensions, is actually very very simplistic. But it clearly worries people a lot. It's a, again, it's a very very live topic. And presumably, this must be a thing. This must be a thing for women. Why does hair matter so much? It's, it's in, because one of the things that I take from this book and indeed your your lovely review of it is, it's extraordinary how hair speaks to cultural or religious identity. It must mean, I mean, for there to be a global trade worth billions of pounds of disused hair, hair must mean an awful lot. The meaning of hair, I think, is the fascinating thing yeah. that comes out of it. But I, I'm still slightly left short as to well, what that well, meaning it, is. Can I put it like this? If you, you have, I'm sitting opposite you, you have lovely hair. God, I thank can you, see thank you so that. much for that, Captain. But yeah. were you to start losing it in 10 years' time, would you not, would it not sort of alter your sense of yourself? Would you not feel a little bit miserable every morning? I, I think I think maybe I'd feel different, but I'm not sure I'd feel, would I feel miserable? Because I think men can, I think, men can I think, carry off losing their hair, can't and they? And I think it probably is different for men than it is for women in a sense because it's it's a thing when you get older and you're and you're a man you will lose your hair so you don't necessarily have control over that but we as women do have control over how we it's a very visible extension of ourselves and it's more permanent than clothing so it's not just about you know wearing platforms when they're in or not when they're out or whatever and yet, though, you're, the, the whole wig trade is almost the opposite of that yeah. because you're assuming, in this sense, the, the articulation of another self, someone else's uh, hair that you've picked up from anywhere. Well, I mean, that would only be, I mean, as Theus just said, you know, it, that would just be playing with another identity, which we do as, as women all the time. You know, wear a skirt one day or, you know, yeah. wear trousers the next. I mean, actually wearing hair could just be something that was fun. I mean, I remember my grandmother in the 70s, there was a brief trend for women in Britain to have sort of fun wigs. They were ludicrous. They didn't look like real hair. But I mean, I remember my rather glamorous sort of brunette grandmother suddenly sporting something that was kind of definitely a kind of light brown and very, very sort of plasticky looking. <laughs> and it was supposed to be a fun moment. There was no, she wasn't trying to cover anything up yeah. and I think that it sort of says something that you know wearing somebody else's hair can just feel like being somebody else for the day and yet, so it moves from a kind of light thing that you're explaining there to something fundamental to do with your culture as mm. you're talking about the African-American culture perhaps and then religion where people who are hugely orthodox mm. regard their hair the notion that hair can kind of express sexual maturity or being in a sexual is, is at one level kind of extraordinary isn't it because it's just as you say you know it's something that's not quite living not quite dead it just sits on your head and uh, if you looked at it purely biologically it's it's just a bit of 
dead-ish matter sitting on your head. Well, that's what I find so extraordinary about Tarlow's book. I mean, she does make you concentrate on the sort of the weirdness of the whole thing. And, and it I, makes it worth it makes it worth a book like this. I exactly. Think, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry to dwell on the dark side of things, but one of the bits in your review that compelled me most, and it actually sort of sent a shiver down my spine, is is the bit where you refer to it in relation to the ethical implications of uh, a trade in human body parts on a on a huge global scale because that that i mean that's such a slippery slippery area to be in well exactly you know when one hears about on on the deep web that you know people are selling their kidneys for for, out of desperation Mm. that makes one feel absolutely sort of horrible and yet there are these uh, very very kind of large uh, websites just dedicated to buying hair if i wanted to go home now i could i could have some lovely lovely hair couriered over to me by this evening and that just seems extraordinary it's i think that's a very fair way of leaving it it's extraordinary <laughs> and, and actually I, I kind of feel a new respect for hair and those who have it as a result of this review uh, Catherine, thank you so much for coming it's, it's a great piece and the book i think it, it seems like it the book at least reveals the fact that this is something worth thinking about as, as a useful way of looking at culture or looking at national identity or looking at religion it's a nice nice way into it it's a great starting off point i think that's great Catherine, thank you so much indeed That's almost all we have time for this week. Before we hear a clip of our interview with Lionel Shriver, Thea and I must thank Ruth Skirt, Seamus Perry and Catherine Hughes. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on all sorts of cultural subjects. This week's paper, The Life Writing Special, is now on sale with the pieces we've discussed today, plus Andrew Motion on Thomas Hardy, Sergei Ushakin on Nobel winner Svetlana Alexievich. Theo, are you happy with my Russian? I'm very happy. Yeah, it's difficult. It's not my, it's not my area. No, it's certainly not mine. <laughs> Mika Rossouthall on The Crazy Art of Marina Abramovich, Arifa Akbar on The Memoir of a Declining Life by Corey Taylor and Robert Douglas Fairhurst on two new films based on books by Philip Roth. You can visit our website the-tls.co.uk to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers including Erica Neely on the ethics of 3D printing. Were you aware there was an ethical dilemma around 3D printing? Well, I mean, insofar as they can be used to make guns. And bombs. OK, there we go. I'm sure it will cover those two, <laughs> not particularly certainly. I never really thought of it, but yeah, that's very fair. <laughs> Emily Reynolds on Madness in Art and 20 Questions with Elif Shafak. And followers on Twitter, likers on Facebook and reviewers on iTunes. We will read out any comments you leave there. We're going to end with an extract from an interview between our biography editor, Catherine Morris, and American novelist Lionel Shriver. The full interview will be released as a podcast later this week, but here Lionel tells Catherine about the relationship between Donald Trump and writing fiction. Until next week, we'll be back with more of the same, only a little bit different, from Thea and me, goodbye. A New York Times reviewer called you the Cassandra of American letters and your work is often described as prescient. How far does that apply in reference to this novel? Well, in terms of um, the rapidity with which uh, my country is capable of unraveling, um, this being the week of the election, I'm afraid it's all too prescient, though, of course, what I was looking at um, was fiscal in nature and uh, I... I don't have a demagogue and a complete fool being elected president, so I guess I missed a trick there. Yes, in fact, I was going to ask how relevant he is to your to your vision. Um, you mentioned yesterday at your masterclass that if you'd written him as a character two years ago, no, your publishers would have said, well, that's absurd, no-one's going to believe that he could be elected or even be a 
Oh, I entirely, yeah. I entirely yeah. believe that. Yes. I think yeah. that Trump would make a failed fictional character. Mm. He's way too over the top. Yeah. Um, his he's too inarticulate. He's got too low an IQ. I mean, I would imagine uh, on paper a successful demagogue would be quite seductive. You know, well-spoken, mm. silver-tongued, yeah. even. Yeah. And uh, perhaps more physically attractive. I, I find Trump really an ugly man. I mean, in every sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously insulting Donald Trump. It's it's one. It's impossible to. Uh, it's impossible to be mean enough, honestly, and and be true to, true to life. I just don't think that if you if you wrote the story. Of this election in fiction, that it would seem plausible. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.